0: political misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou, and I'm here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the grain. We have a lot of big topics today. There's actually a lot in the news, like serious news. Mm -hmm. We have Supreme Court decisions from yesterday and from this morning to get into, including some very consequential and upsetting, frankly, rulings on sovereignty in Indian country and the regulatory authority of the EPA, which really was eviscerated today in this uh, Supreme Court decision. Yeah. We'll talk about Joe Biden saying that he would support a filibuster exception to allow Congress to get around the court's Dobbs decision. Uh, That's interesting because he's also in the process right now, as we speak, of nominating a man for a federal judgeship in Kentucky who not only is anti-abortion, he's been an anti-abortion activist and has represented the state of Kentucky uh, as the Solicitor General, in three cases that would ban abortion in that state.
1: I mean, John, should we be glad that the administration is is nominating anyone, considering other reports that we're getting that they're
0: just well, leaving actually, these judgeships open? Right. We're going to talk about that, too. Um, the Brookings Institution has a study out uh, saying that, that— Wait, let me guess. Sorry. Qatar is the best nation in the world. And that, too. <laughs> and that, too. And Northrop Grumman is the best defense contractor in the world. Weird how they keep finding this. (laughs) (laughs) They have a study out saying that Joe Biden has nominated more people to the federal court than any president since since John Kennedy, but has had fewer people approved for the federal bench than any president since Ronald Reagan. And so we have dozens, perhaps hundreds of vacancies. That's especially dangerous at the appellate level, where it's where it's particularly bad. Mm -hmm. Okay, I lost my place, but there I am. So we're all going to also going to talk about crime and punishment in Los Angeles Mm -hmm. and where QAnon has gotten to, yeah, including Congress, right?
1: Um, Maybe only Congress. They got. (laughs) It's interesting. QAnon. QAnon really. I don't know if we talked about this on air or if we talked about this privately, uh, but QAnon really has fallen off. Yeah, right, it fallen, has fallen out of uh, out of the scene. Uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people who were members of the, the the conspiracy, sort of, mm-hmm. uh, what do you call it? Thought, thought bubble. <laughs> I don't know right. if it's more organized than yeah. that. Um, have become disillusioned. The guy who was posing as Q uh, disappeared for a long time, and then I right. guess just popped back up last week. But it, right. there's not a lot of. Um, I don't know. I think it's not necessarily going to resurge, and the question is how how significant was it? Right? Are are right. we going to look back at QAnon as having had any kind of significant political or social impact, or you know, just a weird
0: that's a, that's a, a really, weird blip? Yeah, that's the sixty four thousand dollars question right mm-hmm. there. Uh, you know, QAnon was taken so seriously between two thousand sixteen and two thousand twenty, mm-hmm. um, and And then they started doing things like gathering in Dallas for the reincarnation of John F. Kennedy. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And then Kennedy didn't come back. What? And then they said they had calculated the date wrong. Right. So about two months ago, they all went back to Dallas again because Kennedy's coming back to life to lead them. And then he didn't come back again. So now, I mean, it's gone from from the absurd to the preposterous. And there are always going to be a core of lunatics who are desperate for something to follow. But I think that they're just not the group that they were four years ago, and they won't be again. Mm -hmm. Also, this this guy who may be Q, um, his—well, it's a man and his son, Mm -hmm. right? There was this six-part HBO series about it. Whichever one is Q, the son is running for Congress in uh, Arizona. And there was some real fear a year ago that my God, we may have Q himself as a member of Congress. Well, he's polling now around seven percent. Mm. He's in fourth place in the Republican primary. He's not gonna be in Congress. Mm-hmm. And I my guess is that Q's just gonna sort of go away with a whimper.
1: Q no matter who, right? Yeah. That should be the new Yeah. <laughs> the Q no matter who. Yeah. Not going to work, I guess.
0: We're going to talk about Joe Biden's very strange press conference uh, at the end of the the Madrid summit. Uh, we yeah. both we both listened to it and it was braggadocious and provocative. Pretty depressing and, also yeah. in
1: terms of the non-answers to non- some really answers, important questions. Yeah, yeah. To yeah.
0: legitimate questions yeah. that Americans want the answers to. Yeah. And then, you know, to blame literally everything, every problem. That we have, whether it's upcoming food shortages, supply chain disruptions, inflation, high gas prices, all of it is Vladimir Putin's fault. Yeah. He actually said that. Yeah. So, I don't know. I was disappointed. It's
1: wearing thin, I think.
0: I agree with you. It's it's wearing thin. So, we're going to cover those stories today. There are a couple of other things in the news that I thought were interesting. I know that you thought were interesting. Uh, we mentioned a couple of days ago that Lauren Boebert, the... Uh, The QAnon congresswoman from uh, Western Colorado Mm -hmm. said that she was tired of of this separation of church and state silliness. Yeah. Well, a couple of the the online political uh, newspapers have picked up on it. And um, she she made this statement said she was tired of the separation of church and state silliness and said that the church is supposed to direct the government. Everybody knows that. Right. The church is supposed to direct the government. So Adam Kinzinger, who I like and respect very much, but has been so outspoken in his opposition to Donald Trump and to people like Lauren Boebert and Matt Gates and mm-hmm. Madison Cawthorn and Marjorie Taylor Greene, <clears throat> that he didn't dare run for re-election. Even his own family walked away from him. But he said yesterday that Boebert was part of the Christian Taliban mm. And uh, he called her ignorant of American history, which she clearly is, and of the writings of the Founding Fathers, and said that it was the duty of all Americans to oppose her and people like her. And I think he's exactly right. But, like I say, the the primary was held in uh, Illinois the other day. He's not going to be in Congress anymore. No. So, there you have it. Yeah. And yeah. she got, you know, 87% in her primary. That's the
1: thing. That's the thing. People like her. People didn't like Kinsinger.
0: What do you think of this, uh, this announcement, or not announcement, this statement by Joe Biden today about the filibuster? You know, I, I'm of two minds on this. Number one, yeah, the filibuster stops Democrats from implementing their strategy. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the filibuster stops Republicans from ramming unpopular programs down our throats. Mm-hmm. And so do we do away with it so we can try to codify Uh, protections under Roe v. Wade? Or do we say, look, you know, this is the only thing that's stopping us from having a, a, you know, populist, conservative, neo-fascist kind of weirdo dictatorship in this country? I don't know. I, it bothers I don't me. know.
1: I do think if it's a matter of like, this is the only thing standing between us and having unpopular programs rammed down our throats. I feel like that's happening anyway. So, yeah. you know, that's where it kind of wears thin. Yeah. I mean, uh, we have guests on the show who uh, argue really passionately that that's the only thing, yeah. uh, you know, that it's pr- protecting majority rule, which is really important. I mean, y- I, yes, it. To the extent that this country has majority rule anyway, mm-hmm. you know what I mean mm-hmm. if you look at what actually the the um, if you look at what people actually want as demonstrated in in polls and uh, opinion questions and the like right so is the filibuster defending something that doesn't really exist anyway would be the question that I would raise as to whether or not whether or not we should in this moment uh, yeah get around it
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to be an ongoing fight. This is something I think we're going to talk about for for a long time. Yeah. yeah. You had some news coming I, out of uh, Louisiana.
1: Some. yep, A little bit of personal news. No, <laughs> 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 this, is, no the, this is the AP. And so far I've seen it's only AP reporting uh, this through some anonymous sources, you know, the usual officials close to the matter. Um, but. According to AP, the FBI has opened quite a big investigation into sex abuse in the Roman Catholic Church in New Orleans going back decades. And the FBI is involved here because at question is whether priests took children across state lines to molest them. Uh, AP says more than a dozen alleged victims have been interviewed this year and prosecutors are looking at whether the alleged abusers can be prosecuted. Under an anti-sex trafficking law that prohibits taking anyone across state lines for illicit sex, it also is a law that doesn't have a statute of limitations. And that's important because some of this abuse, you know, comes from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Yeah. Some of the cases apparently involve allegations of abuse at camps or amusement parks in Mississippi, Florida and Texas. Uh, The FBI, as far as I saw this morning, has not commented. Louisiana State Police have not commented. The Archdiocese of New York declined to discuss it um but you know i i certainly i expect there's some fire there for all that smoke and yep. you know it's it's yep. shameful it, it, the church's cover-up of this kind of abuse is is really shameful yeah, i think shocking. you know this is not the powerful people using their positions to prey on the vulnerable is not uh an activity exclusive to the catholic church right Mm -hmm. This happens among all clergy. Mm -hmm. You know, it's why predators go to boys and girls clubs. It's why you go visit orphanage. You know what I mean? And this is what you, if you are a predator, you go to where you will have control over over vulnerable people. That's right. But, you know, certainly as an entity, uh, the church has a responsibility not to cover up for the monsters in its midst. And so I I expect they will find more of the same here in Louisiana and it will be a greater shame for this church.
0: Yep. Did you happen to see the reporting in the New York Post today, the always entertaining uh, New York Post today? There was a 32-year-old pastor in Kissimmee, Florida, who was arrested for masturbating on the patio of a Starbucks. Oh. And um, they said it's the second time he's been arrested because it turned out the first time he masturbated on the patio of the same Starbucks. Okay, yeah. And, of course, he's a youth pastor.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He just really likes that Starbucks. I guess. You know, people fall in love with buildings and stuff. Marry, Mary, uh, you know, it, inanimate you, objects you, and you things can't, like that.
0: You can't control yourself long enough to drink a cup of coffee. Yes, not. I, I don't understand people. Guess not.
1: Uh there's some other stuff in the news. Of course, we have Israel dissolving its government. Surprise, surprise. I guess we saw that coming. Uh Yair Lapid, the foreign minister, yeah. is the caretaker prime minister. Uh, Netanyahu preparing himself. To take the helm of the Israeli government again, we will see. There's, I don't know when the election is planned for. I believe I heard the fifth, but that could be wrong. Mm. Uh, But yeah, they're going to have to hold another election. This was the first government, first coalition government that involved an independent Arab party. That's right. Um, Didn't last all that long. No,
0: no, didn't. And frankly, didn't change anything. Yeah.
1: Um, The other story that I think is worth mentioning is that a French court yesterday found 20 men guilty of taking part in the ISIS terror attacks on the Bataclan Theater, Mm -hmm. cafes in Paris, and the National Stadium in 2015. I didn't realize it was that long ago. Yeah, I didn't either. It killed 130 people, the deadliest peacetime attacks in French history. Yeah, I mean, that was a huge deal. Mm -hmm. I remember that. I remember exactly where I was hearing about that. It's Mm -hmm. one of those things. Um, There was one survivor of the group of 10 people who actually committed the attacks. So he was found guilty of murder and attempted murder. In addition to other charges, he was sentenced to life in prison without parole. This is the heaviest sentence of French and court. And it's a very, very
0: unusual sentence. In In almost all European Union countries, life in prison means either 17 or 20 years. Yeah. Life without parole is very unusual.
1: Yeah. Uh, the rest of the men were found guilty of various terrorism charges and a fraud charge. Some of them were sentenced to to life in prison. Others with lesser charges were sentenced to time serve and freed. This was interesting. I didn't know this. One of the defendants is also accused of having a direct role in the March 2016 attack in Brussels. Jeez. That was deadly, much smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, the survivor of the attack, right, the guy who was sentenced to life in prison without parole, apparently g- cried Throughout the proceedings, apologized and asked for the judges to forgive his mistakes. Uh, And uh, yeah, that sounds pretty gross. He um, I guess his team had argued that he had decided not to follow through with the attack and ditched his suicide vest. But the court found that it had malfunctioned. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's the only reason he took it off.
1: Yeah, I guess. I mean, I I suppose I'm whatever. This guy sounds like an absolute scumbag. And uh, the idea of crying, crying and asked. Asking to be forgiven for the mistake of taking part in a plot to murder 130 people's,
0: unforgivable to me. Yeah, unforgivable. Yep. Well, we are going to speak in a moment with Wyatt Reed later in the show. We have Darren Thompson, we have attorney Reese Everson, and we have Tina Desiree Berg, who's always excellent and is going to talk to us about her personal experiences recently in Los Angeles. You are listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. President Biden held a press conference today at the end of the NATO summit in Madrid. The president, who appeared to be winging many of his responses, uh, made several points, but he sidestepped several very important questions, too. Biden said that NATO is changing because the world is changing and that NATO's borders with Russia will increase by 800 miles with the addition of Finland and Sweden. He announced that the U.S. would send yet another $800 million in military aid to Ukraine and said that allied countries have lauded American leadership in the Russia-Ukraine war. The president also blamed U.S. domestic problems like high inflation and gas prices on Russia. Finally, the president spoke about his plans for an international Build Back Better package, saying that it's just a notion, but that, quote, when the West puts skin in the game, you bring money off the sidelines, unquote. I was so offended by that.
1: I really was. Also, why, if it's so important, why did it take China to spur you to do this? And why did it take you 13 years to get around? Sorry, not 13 years. It was 2014. Right. Seven years, seven years to get years. around to it. Why yeah. did it
0: take you that why? long? Why? Yeah. And then all you can do is brag about all the great work you've done in Angola. Come <laughs> know, on. Come on. He said that unlike China, the international build back better would be done with transparency and with high standards.
1: Sorry, I know <laughs> why it was going to be 13 years because nothing's going to happen until 2027. That's right. When they first announced it. You're exactly I'm not right. losing my mind.
0: We're going to talk about this with Wyatt Reed. Wyatt is a Sputnik News correspondent, and he's reporting from Madrid. Welcome back, Wyatt.
2: Hey, John Hey, Michelle. Glad to be here.
0: We're glad to have you. Wyatt, this presser seems like vintage Joe Biden to me. Much of it was off the cuff. It was unscripted, which generally is not a good thing for Joe Biden. He blamed Vladimir Putin for America's problems. He said that the U.S. would support Ukraine for, quote, as long as it takes unquote. But then he didn't answer a question about what exactly that means for Americans and what the impact of a long war will be for Americans. What are your thoughts on, on the press conference? How do you think he did? And tell us your thoughts on the substance of this thing. Well, like you said, this
2: was vintage Biden. We got a number of misstatements. He accidentally mistook Sweden for Switzerland at yeah. one point. <laughs> yeah. He said that he wanted the findalization I think he was trying to say Finlandization. He <laughs> said Finlandization of NATO, but Putin got the Finlandization, or the, he wanted, yeah, yeah the, the Finlandization yeah. instead of Finlandization. That was, an, that was another big uh, classic Biden moment. And I think in terms of the substance, the, the big headline here is that Biden says, drivers are going to pay high gas prices for as long as it takes. And he won't say how long that is. He was repeatedly asked by journalists, how long does that mean? And he just said again, over and over, as long as it takes. In response to a question by Jim Tankersley of the New York Times, he said, how long is it fair to expect American drivers and drivers around the world to pay that premium for this war as long as it takes? Uh, You know, so I guess drivers here uh, in the States and in Europe, and really everywhere can expect that Joe Biden will simply force them to incur the added costs uh, that, you know, we've seen on, on fuel prices yeah. to just continue. You know, those will just go on indefinitely until he determines that uh, enough is enough. And I would say the uh, the other important angle here, you know, is his, 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 his uh, he almost adopted the mocking phrase that. Trump used, he said, ultimately, the reason why gas prices are up is because of Russia. Russia, Russia, Russia. The reason why the food crisis exists is because of Russia. Russia is not allowing grain to get out of Ukraine. Um, And that's, you know, it's a fairy tale. Uh, That's just not the reality. That's not what's happening. Uh, And, you know, you could barely even convince a child that that's what's happening, (laughs) according to The FAO, the Food and Agricultural Organization of the U.N., Russia accounts for 14 percent of global wheat Mm production Mm production. Ukraine uh, is at just four percent. That's less than a third. So, you know, the issue here is obviously the sanctions against Russia, not uh, Russia somehow preventing Ukraine from demining its own ports. Right. And, you know, this is something that is recognized by world leaders outside of the outside of the West. This is really common sense. You know what, I, after a meeting that, uh, with Russian Federation President Vladimir Putin earlier this month, Macky Saul, who's the head of the African Union, said that, quote, President Putin expressed to us his readiness to facilitate Ukrainian wheat exports. Russia is ready to ensure the export of its wheat and fertilizers. I call on all partners to lift sanctions targeting wheat and fertilizer. Of course, none of these partners have done so so far because, you know, this is this is a a, a a tactic in their broader sort of NATO proxy war on Russia, which is, you know, something that we have been saying for many, many months. But, you know, hopefully will finally sink in among among some of the people who are going to have to pay the price yeah. for this ongoing proxy war.
0: Uh, Biden said that the U.S. would provide Ukraine with an additional $800 million in military aid. And this was not teased by the White House before he announced it. He just came out with it. Um, this is supposed to include things like new air defense systems, artillery, ammunition, and something called counter-battery radar, and that the Ukrainians would want for nothing in this war, he said. But then he didn't answer any questions on where the money for this is going to come from, especially in light of the fact that we have an infrastructure that's falling apart in this country. Uh, Do you see a limit to the provision of weapons and materiel, or is this something that the U.S. is just going to continue to do indefinitely, even if we have to borrow the money from future generations to pay for it?
2: I wish I did see a limit to it. Unfortunately, it seems that we have now found our new forever war. This is seems to be the yeah. replacement for Afghanistan, the way by which, you know, as Julian Assange might explain it, that the uh, military industrial complex is able to uh, wash out the, the tax revenue of the domestic population and stick it directly into their coffers and, you know, subsidize the political class all the while. I wish that I did see an end in sight. But, you know, as you, as you correctly noted, it is pretty unclear where the payment for any of this. And it's not the only thing they announced. Unfortunately, not clear that there really is an upper limit to the amount of, yeah. of military hardware that the U.S. especially, and now the rest of, of the West of Europe, seems to be prepared to provide to this uh, crumbling regime here in Kiev. Uh, yeah, and 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 even with the other uh, announcements in terms of the <coughs> surge in military deployments, they want the rapid response deployment to shoot up uh, from forty thousand to three hundred thousand. They want this uh, to send two new F thirty five squadrons to the UK, two new naval destroyers to Spain, among many others, and supposedly even a whole new headquarters for the U.S. Fifth Army in Poland. It's unclear where the money for all of this is going to come from, I would suspect that as much of NATO expenditures, as is the case with much of, of the expenditures of NATO, uh, will come from the U.S. taxpayer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that that is effectively the arrangement that that has existed for many years, as President Trump pointed out several times uh, during his tenure. So, you know, I think, unfortunately, it will be the working people in the West who are left to bear the brunt of all this.
0: The president said a lot in this press conference today about the effect that sanctions are having on Russia. He said that the Russians are defaulting on their national debt. He said that the Russian economy has been set back 15 years in that. That's how much economic shrinkage has taken place. And he said that sanctions on technology transfer will cripple the Russian oil industry. Is any of that true? Can the Russians not withstand the long-term effects of this war because it's not like it's not like, you know, Iraq 20 years ago. This is not a, a global sanctions regime. The Russians have have very healthy trade relations with a lot of countries that are not participating in sanctions.
2: Yeah, I think this default kind of kind of exposes the reality of the situation. They said that Russia has defaulted. And in response, Russia's ruble shot up some more. It hit a seven year high yesterday. So this is, you know, not really working. As you point out, this is this is not a small fry country that you can just hold under your thumb indefinitely. You can't uh, you can't just destroy their economy, which is obviously what they wanted to do. Um, And the response has been rather than than Russia imploding, it's been for much of the rest of the world to rally around Russia for people uh, in countries like Argentina, uh, Iran to push ahead with their attempts to uh, to become members of the BRICS uh, 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 mechanism, uh-huh. which is a, a real, probably the the biggest, most serious alternative to these kind of you know to NATO to these broader sort of of so-called alliances by which the U.S. seems to impose its will on on much of the rest of the West. So you know the, the, that's that's really just one part of it. We we've also seen a number of uh, of other efforts to move beyond the dollar as as the global reserve currency from nominal allies like Saudi Arabia as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, really, they're just Effectively making it easier for the rest of the world to do what they want to do, which is to create more uh, leeway for themselves, to create, to get a better situation, more economic leverage. All of this seems to have been backfiring.
0: Uh, NATO also drafted a new mission statement at this summit. This was very interesting to me. It's the first new mission statement for NATO in 12 years. Biden noted that the last mission statement didn't even mention China. And today he said this. He said, quote, at this summit, we rallied our alliances to meet both the direct threats that Russia poses to Europe and the systemic challenges that China poses to a rules based world order, unquote. What exactly does that mean?
2: Well, I think it means that China is now included in the list of targets that NATO goes after. It's. NATO has always been effectively an anti-Russian alliance, even if people don't want to put it that way. That was effectively why it was created in the first place, uh, and that certainly was clear here in Madrid this week. But now, now you correctly note we are including China in these lists of uh, apparent targets that could be attacked, could be uh, subject to. Uh, future sanctions. They said that they they described China as an authoritarian actor and described this kind of threat. They said the deepening strategic partnership between the People's Republic of China and the Russian Federation and their mutually reinforcing attempts to undercut the rules-based international order run counter to our values and interests Uh, so I think now we have the transformation from NATO, uh, as a de facto anti-Russian alliance to a de facto anti-East alliance, really any challenge, any power that grows too big for its britches in the eyes of the West is now considered to be a threat. And we'll see exactly what that means. Um, but I would suspect that it means Uh, They're opening the door for future crackdowns on Chinese people, on uh, future crackdowns on social media, uh, on media in general, and basically starting this long process of trying to turn China and the Western imagination into what Russia is currently.
0: Wyatt, 30 migrants drowned yesterday off the coast of Libya, and another 20 migrants were found dead in the Libyan desert apparently trying to get to Europe. This comes on the heels of now 53 migrants found dead in a tractor trailer outside of San Antonio, Texas, a couple of days ago. International migration, regardless of the reason, is an international crisis. Uh, The U.N. is telling us that there are more people on the move now than there have been at any point since the end of the Second World War. Couple that with food shortages that everybody is talking about coming Uh, by the end of the year, and this really is a crisis of historic proportions. Was any of this discussed at the summit? Are there any plans by the NATO allies to address it?
2: So There were two mentions of migration in this strategic concept document. They're portraying regular mass migration as a hybrid threat that hostile powers could potentially use to undermine NATO nations. Uh, the direct quote here is that this situation provides fertile ground for the proliferation of non-state armed groups, including terrorist organizations. It also enables destabilizing and coercive interference by strategic competitors. So the subtext here seems to be that perhaps Russia and China are actually responsible for the migration con- uh, 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 crisis. You know, not not the NATO intervention in Libya, for example, which brought back open air slave markets to the African continent, that's somehow not seen as a strategic threat under the framework of of this uh, strategic concept. But some unspecified hypothetical uh, interference by by Russia and China, that seems to be the main issue, if you ask uh, NATO. So they did mention they did mention it uh, as, you know, basically a, a means of Further stigmatizing Russia and China, and further opening the door to uh, threatening actions against those countries. Somehow, they did not mention, for example, the uh, 23 at least African men who died just this week at the Maliya border uh, with Maroc, with Morocco, uh, which who were effectively killed by border patrol. And who were then congratulated by their country's respective presidents and said, you know, what, oh what a wonderful job they've done. Uh, this is this is somehow not factored into the, the strategic concept, but that seems to be the much more pressing issue in terms of migration. You know, Spanish and Moroccan authorities uh, effectively congratulating each other on the murder of people who attempted to cross their border. That's somehow not mentioned here, but... Uh, if you ask me, it certainly should be.
0: Wow. One final question for you. India's biggest cement producer, which is a major regional exporter of cement, is importing a shipment of Russian coal, and they're paying for it using Chinese yuan. This is highly unusual, but it may become more common because of these these sanctions on Russia. This is also exactly what the U.S. has long worked to prevent. And I mean, going back To the 70s. They wanted every major international trade deal, uh, trade agreement to be made in dollars. Uh, Do you see more companies and more countries using the yuan to circumvent problems with the use of the dollar in international business transactions? Could this eventually threaten the U.S. economy?
2: Absolutely. Well, I don't know. It, It will threaten the U.S. dollar hegemony for sure. Yep. Yep. And in the loss of dollar hegemony, there are quite likely to be some uh, some consequences as well for U.S. consumers and consequences on inflation, which is already uh, at the highest it's been in, in decades. So, yes, I, I absolutely see this as really kind of a, a, a trend that only goes one direction. And if you listen to what uh, Putin said at the BRICS Business Forum yesterday, he said the matter of creating the new international reserve currency based on the basket of currencies of our country is under review. He said that Russia is ready to openly work with all fair partners. And meanwhile, trading uh, in wanton and, and ruble has surged more than a 1,000% over the past few months. So really, you know, this is... these are We're talking about deals, transactions that prior to the sanctions on Russia would have been made in dollars. These, Mm -hmm. you know, India and Russia historically mainly traded in dollars. And now this seems to be, uh, you know, the cat's kind of out of the bag. And I'm not sure how much the United States uh, will be able to do to put it back.
0: Okay, we're going to leave it there. That was the voice of Wyatt Reed, who joined us from Madrid. Wyatt is a Sputnik News correspondent. And he was there covering the NATO summit. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We'll be back after a short break.
1: where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Whitty. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we are about to get started on a multi-part conversation covering some very serious and impactful Supreme Court decisions over the last Mm -hmm. couple of days. But before we start that, I wanted to mention, I don't know how this didn't generate more headlines in the West, right in the mainstream press uh these mysterious deaths of 21 people uh all or mostly teenagers yes at a club in south africa this is in eastern cape province this was on Mm -hmm. sunday morning and it looks like these 17 teens inside the club dead four died as they were being transported to the hospital and if pictures that are being shared online and reports are to be believed they just sort of dropped dead. They slumped over where they were sitting, uh, fell over while they were dancing, sat down to take a breather, and then... And then just died. And then
0: just died. I saw a reference today to poison, but... uh They don't know what happened.
1: They thought at first people were thinking it must have been a stampede, Mm -hmm. but that wasn't it. It Mm -hmm. seems like people rushed the doors after this started happening because what's also weird to me is that there were also a bunch of survivors. Mm -hmm. And the survivors describe, uh, you know, feeling like they were suffocating. Uh, saying there are people who can't breathe, having a a smell of something in the air that smelled like pepper spray or whatever, um, and trying to get out. And so, yeah, the the authorities who are investigating have really have made no comments. Crazy. Um, But it's wild. They're thinking maybe, I mean, gas leak, you gotta think?
0: right. Yeah. Sure. It would have to be. Something like that.
1: It's a crazy story, and I'm very interested in in seeing what the resolution is, and obviously a really terrible story for the families of these young people who, I guess, were celebrating the end of the school year Mm -hmm. by just trying to have a party. Just awful. Anyway, well—
3: terrible not
1: not making a turn to really good news here no uh but i guess less less deadly right we are talking about one of the supreme court's biggest decisions in this term uh, a case that we've been following for some time this is the decision in in oklahoma versus castro huerta which is being described as having narrowed the scope of the mcgert decision that found that much of the state of oklahoma must by law be recognized as reservation land i think narrowing the scope isn't interesting and maybe inaccurate way of phrasing this, because I would see this as actually just sort of undermining the concept of of sovereignty altogether. Uh, Here to help us understand what this decision actually does is Darren Thompson. He's a reporter for Native News Online and for Unicorn Riot. Hey, Darren, how you doing?
4: Good. How are you?
1: Great. I'm very glad to have you here to talk to us. Uh, the case—this this case, Oklahoma versus Castro Huerta—actually, I have to admit, I have to ask you a fundamental question about this case that I could not find an answer to anywhere. But I'll describe it first. It had to do with a non-Indian man, Victor Manuel Castro Huerta, who was found to have criminally neglected his stepdaughter, who was a member of Cherokee Nation— and it says, while living on the Cherokee reservation—and my question is, was this pre-McGurt or post-McGurt? Because what happened was he was convicted in a state court of this neglect. While he was appear- appealing his sentence, uh, the McGurt decision was issued, uh, his— State conviction was vacated. He was retried in federal court. He took a plea agreement of seven years in prison, followed by deportation. This was a much shorter sentence than he'd been given by the state court. And so this case comes before the Supreme Court, asking who had the right to try and punish this man. And my question, Darren—and I I feel like an idiot, but I can't find anywhere. I just keep saying that he committed this crime— on reservation land. And so then I ask, well, why was the state court ever trying him in the first place? And I can only conclude that it was that it now it is considered reservation land. Anyway, Darren, can you, can you clear this up for us before we even ask any more questions?
4: Yeah. So the crime that Casahorta uh, was charged and convicted of happened and occurred in 2015.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: And so he appealed it after the McGurk right, okay. decision was made.
1: Yes. Okay, that makes sense, because I was thinking, why would a state court have ever tried him? State courts have not had jurisdiction uh, in in Indian country. Uh, However— That is not really the case anymore. Prior to this decision, it would have been only the federal government who had the right to prosecute non-Indians for crimes against Native people in Indian country, with a few explicit exceptions that are laid out in law. Now, the court finds that the state has the right to do this, and Brett Kavanaugh, writing for the majority, finds that Indian country is part of the state, meaning individual states, not separate from the state. And so I want you to, you know, talk to us about what this ruling means, and not just for Oklahoma, but for 300 other reservations.
4: Sure. So I think the language in that statement is limited in the fact that there's a clause in there where it says, except for a few rare uh, exceptions. And that is, I wouldn't narrow it down to a few rare. There's a public law passed called Public Law 280, which essentially grants Right, particular states' jurisdiction on Indian lands, and these states are Alaska, California, Wisconsin, Minnesota, excluding Red Lake Reservation in northern Minnesota.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: So what this means and what this change implies is that for the first time ever, for example, let's like, say in Minnesota, which is where I'm based, the state government, uh, law enforcement never had jurisdiction on the Red Lake Indian Reservation, and for the first time it will.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: And they haven't had jurisdiction because they have never uh, ceded their land or made treaties with the state. And so their their treaties are specifically with the federal government, and they refuse to do so.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: And so now, without their input or without their say, and this is one of the reasons why many tribal leaders and tribes and organizations representing tribes and their members are expressing disappointment and extreme uh dissatisfaction in this this change because there were no people speaking on behalf of tribal nations that were really at the table. Oh, So this decision, once again, as Public Law 280 was passed in the 1950s, that now, once again, states are, our tribes are at the will of another new foreign entity that they have to establish an entirely new relationship from scratch with.
1: Right. I mean, people are... People are getting pretty upset at language in the, in the opinion saying Indian country is part of the state, not separate from the state and a state has jurisdiction over all of its territory, including Indian country. And as you point out, these uh, these nations, these reservations uh, have only have negotiated with the federal government. And so you know I think it is weird to talk about narrowing the scope of this decision. It seems like it just really kneecaps the idea of sovereignty at all for Native Nations if now you also have to operate through this intermediary of the state which you had not nece- you know in a formal way been negotiating with before
4: yes and so in order for states to exist uh, to become a state in many situations uh, the federal government already had established uh, treaties with various indian tribes so technically many of these treaties are predate the creation of states and that mm-hmm. had to be squared away before before a uh, a place gained its statehood,
3: mm-hmm.
4: and so you know there's there's very that's a very black and white viewpoint to look at uh tribes being under or within the exterior boundaries of a state, and therefore the state has jurisdiction on its land mm-hmm. okay. uh, While that may be true, I think the language is limited in the fact that. The lands that belong to the tribes, although they may be in the exterior boundaries of a state, they actually have been created and set aside in a federal trust Mm -hmm. uh, responsibility by the federal government. So tribes technically don't own land. They have land that is kept and held in trust with the federal government, which is one of the roles that the Bureau of Indian Affairs Uh, takes on Mm -hmm. predominantly is the management of land, both public and tribal and and others that belong to the federal government.
1: Can you talk about uh, what this decision is based on. Uh, Cherokee journalist Rebecca Nagel has called it a ruling on politics rather than law or precedent. And so I wonder if you could talk about the politics of this case and, and you know, how, how it regards law and precedent when it comes to negotiating with different Native nations.
4: Sure. So we know that after the passing of the McGirt decision that a significant portion of eastern Oklahoma was still under reservation land. Mm -hmm. So that means the remaining 56% is still belonging to the state of Oklahoma, and there are other tribes in other parts of that state. And how are those tribes doing? And And the argument that the state of Oklahoma is window dressing their case as is they want to protect the heck out of Native people. Right. All right. Cool. Great. But on the flip side, how does that look, for example, in Oklahoma City, which actually has a higher rate in case number of missing and murdered indigenous women? It actually tops is one of the top cities in metropolitan areas in the country mm-hmm. for that statistic. And so what she's referring to by politics is that this isn't about public safety. I mean, of course, it can be. The numbers speak for themselves. Mm-hmm. This is about... Power. This is about who gets to say on a particular land, mm-hmm. and although it still may be reservation, it still can. The state still has a say, and this has always been about land. Mm-hmm. The the fallback or the with like the the return or response of the McGirt decision has been very aggressive and very. Uh, Anti-McGirt, if you will, they mm-hmm. want the land back, and I think that that this case is was a was a obviously a victory for them.
1: Yeah, and I want to talk about uh, some of the the justification that the state has brought to try to uh, you know to to try to get some of this land back. Uh, Oklahoma is basically saying that as a result of the McGirt decision, there is havoc in the Oklahoma court system, that it has lost jurisdiction over 18,000 prosecutions per year, that criminals are getting sweet federal plea deals instead of real justice, and that public safety is endangered. And again, this Cherokee journalist, Rebecca Nagel, she tried to track down any evidence of these claims uh, and, and wrote in The Atlantic that they tried to verify the claims by filing information requests and collecting data from the governor's office, the office of the attorney general, district attorneys, of all stripes, the Oklahoma Department of Corrections, tribes, and the federal judiciary, and they could not find supports, documented supporting evidence for these claims made by the state that they were being, uh, you know, that the, the, they were awash now. And so, you know, what she did find was that the case gaps that existed in Oklahoma were relatively small and probably had to do more with the pandemic than with McGirt. And so I wanted to ask you more specifically, you alluded to this before, you know, the the basis on which the state even brought this case does not seem to be particularly well founded. I, I wanted to ask you about that.
4: Yeah. So the argument by the state is that it does have its jurisdiction to prosecute, People within their land was essentially was essentially the argument, Mm -hmm. and you know the 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 claim that the state is making is that uh, you know the deals that these perpetrators or offenders are making are not as strict. For example, with the federal government, and you know there could be reasons to why the law could be written on a different capacity or different level Mm -hmm. on a federal and a state side. So that doesn't apply to all situations, and, you know, that's that, that could be one example, and that's that's a pretty strong example, I, I would say, and, mm-hmm. you know, good job on, on, their, on their end, but this is the first time in history that we are hearing and learning that the, both the state and the federal government have jurisdiction to prosecute non-Indians who commit crimes against Indian, mm-hmm. Indian land, and from the outside in, many people can say, oh, this looks great. But in reality, during the oral arguments on April 27th, uh, Chief Justice Gorsuch said that states have often throughout history been the worst enemy of tribes, and that is on the record. Mm
3: -hmm.
4: And so that is uh, something I think we're definitely going to be paying attention to, seeing, seeing how that works, Um, because we know, for example, from the pandemic that often the state's Department of Health staff are different than uh uh tribe stats that might like particularly the navajo nation where they have counties that Mm -hmm. has all their own data and it's not the same as the state for who knows whatever reason
1: yeah i mean practically speaking you wonder what this means if suddenly every state also has jurisdiction to prosecute crimes what is this set up? You know, some like weird ping pong between state and federal courts as to who they decide to prosecute for. You know, again, crimes committed by non-Indians on uh, on reservation land. How how do how do you decide then? It's it, or does it sort of invite an encroachment by state authorities into reservations?
4: Yes, it does invite state authorities to encroach on mm-hmm. reservations. And uh, an example in this. Like current day, how that looks is, for example, South Dakota, um, state police don't have jurisdiction on many of the reservations in South Dakota, particularly uh, the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. And what is known is that people who may have warrants, let's say, in Rapid City, the nearest county, Pennington County, where most many people live in the area, Mm -hmm. they will flee and go to the reservation because they know that the state doesn't have jurisdiction to to arrest them there, and mm-hmm. now that changes the whole thing. If they do have knowledge, they have, according to class of works, uh, that they now have authority to arrest and obtain people, and although we can see that that is good, mm-hmm. what it does is it undermines uh, the authority and jurisdiction of tribal police.
3: Mm-hmm. So
4: then now do tribal police become obsolete? Right. Now we have a competition for resources between federal, state and tribal. Right. And depend, you know, and then then it becomes political. Then it becomes who's in office, who who wants to be aggressive with this particular area of law enforcement or who's influencing, you know, the the budget this year.
1: Let me ask you, you know, the, the perhaps silver lining here, at least according to some analysts, is that Congress could pretty easily pass a fix to the decision by amending the public law 280 uh, that you referenced, right? This 1953 law that allots federal and state criminal jurisdiction. And so I wonder if you could talk about what what a fix would mean and what kind of pressure would be needed to enact it.
4: Yeah, so a fix uh, to undo this state jurisdiction suddenly having the ability to arrest and prosecute people on our lands— uh, it would essentially have to be, well, the Democrats control the House right now mm-hmm. and the White House, and the challenge would be having a Senate component, which then I think the argument would have to definitely point to numbers. Mm-hmm how much it's going to cost, obviously, uh, what are the stats if we don't do this. All of those things need to be researched, and that's where the challenge comes in because often many of these law enforcement agencies have different numbers. You know, that's very basic, mm-hmm. but it, it would take a tremendous amount. Of, I, I don't think it would pass in this, in this House. I think mm-hmm. it would take uh, another another administration perhaps, maybe two, to really – past jurisdiction of how crimes are prosecuted. And the fact that, for example, Secretary Deborah Holland hasn't made a statement or her department hasn't made a statement, Mm -hmm. um, I think is strategic and intentional. Mm. I can't speculate as to why, but um, I think that this was something that was going to be foreseen.
1: I mean, that, you know, my thinking was kind of the opposite, right? Because you have in the Biden administration, at least, you know— Biden at least, you know, paid some attention to tribal nations on the campaign trail. He nominated Deb Holland to be the first Native woman to head the Department of the Interior. You have a Native man confirmed as head of the National Park Service. And, you know, on one hand, we do hear criticisms that this sort of— Diversity at the highest levels is not necessarily the best route to real reform in the lives of real people. It would seem like having some native people in high-level positions could bring exactly the kind of, uh, you know, exactly the kind of pressure and, and whispers in the ear that it might take to get uh, Congress to to pick up an issue that, while, you know, I think extremely consequential, also, you could say, you know, uh, affects—it only affects a small number of people. It's not as though Native issues really get a lot of uh, publicity. So my thinking would be that the time would be—the time would probably have to be now, but I guess you you disagree with that. So I'm curious why you think, you know, you might have a better shot in the future at something like this.
4: Yeah, uh so— you're, you're not incorrect in your analogy as well. I mean you would think that, but as we're seeing uh, with with very little high government response to this, I think that issues are chosen and selected and I and I think that it's going to be really difficult to argue from a public safety point of view because the mm. way it looks to many outsiders is that there's just more there's just more agencies that are able to to prosecute you now.
1: Right. I mean, it kind of gets into our really warped and misguided uh, ideas of public safety. You know, uh, uh, that's maybe what is kind of cr- crushing the possibility here.
4: Yes. And I think that it will be definitely interesting. And, uh, you know, some of the comments I've heard from people is, well, well, great, they get to do whatever we want, whatever they want on our land. Mm-hmm. You know, the state won't won't get involved. And, but that may change. Policing in, tri- in Indian country may change. For example, now they can, regardless of who it is, just arrest, and then the feds and the state will fight over it. Yeah. Maybe that's what that very well could mean. We we don't know. Um, but I knew that I, I do know that policing in Indian country is is different. Mm-hmm. Uh, tribal courts don't require police officers in Indian country to mirandize their arrestees. Mm-hmm. So that's that's another component that was recently ruled down from the Supreme Court. Mm. Uh, double jeopardy is a factor now, um, where if the law is written differently in a state and the federal court, and a member of a tribe or even a non-Indian commits a crime on Indian land, it's possibility now that a person, a non-Indian, could be convicted in sentence in a state court go to a state prison and also face the same charges, but just written differently in federal. That very well could be what this means.
1: It's a wild can of worms that they've opened. Yeah, I guess we'll have to see what actually happens on the ground as a result. That was Darren Thompson. He's a reporter for Native News Online for Unicorn Riot. Darren, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. We are going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come back to talk about some more of the decisions that we heard today and talk a little bit about the politics of filling or not filling some of these federal judge seats. We'll be right back. For Political Misfits, we're live in D.C. We're on Radio Sputnik.
0: It's on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witty. President Biden said today that he will support the abolition of the Senate filibuster in an effort to codify abortion rights. That's a risky move that could have negative consequences in a future situation where Republicans couldn't control the White House and the Congress. But at the same time, Biden has nominated a federal judge, or he's nominated To a federal judge ship, a Kentucky attorney who is an avowed active opponent of abortion rights. President Biden has nominated more judges to the federal bench at this point in his presidency than any president since John F. Kennedy, but he has fewer confirmations than any president since Ronald Reagan. The Biden nominees are diverse, but that won't matter if they can't get confirmed. And the Supreme Court today curbed the EPA's ability to regulate carbon emissions. That's a blow to the Biden administration's efforts to curb greenhouse gases. This is the most consequential environmental finding or ruling by the Supreme Court in decades. We're joined here in the studio by attorney and women's advocate Reese Everson. Reese is founder of the Blush Project, as well as an accomplished author. Her books include The Babe's Guide to Winning in the Workplace. The Babe's Guide to Generational Wealth and The Babe's Divine Feminine Grace. You can learn more about her work at www.mreeseverson.com. Thank you so much for joining us. We're very happy to have you, especially here in the studio. Um, There's so much to talk about. It's almost like I'm not sure where to start. So let's start with abortion since it's been so much in the news this week. President Biden said today that he would support Doing away with the Senate filibuster in an effort to try to codify abortion rights. His heart's in the right place. But this is a, a double-edged sword. Um, it's a great short-term solution, but could come back to cause problems for the Democrats in the future. Republicans, when they someday have control of the White House, the House, and the Senate again, could then pass any legislation they want, no matter how egregious, without the protection of the filibuster. Uh, Michelle made a, a comment to me when we were on break earlier today that I think is a very important one. Um, we're kind of getting screwed in legislation anyway. Absolutely. With the filibuster. Absolutely. So maybe it is time to do away with this, the filibuster. What are your thoughts on this?
5: So here's the thing, John. We've got to look at this from a chess and not checkers position.
0: Exactly. And right.
5: what I'm hearing about the filibuster, it, the idea that you would remove any protection further down the line when Republicans are back in control, which we know that to be, you know, a possibility mm-hmm. um, in, in the near future, specifically, uh, especially with, you know, gerrymandering and, mm-hmm. and things like that. We know that in certain places in the South that you could be elected Uh, The water commissioner, just because you say that you're Mm -hmm. pro-life, you could be elected the dog catcher. I mean, I've I've
0: got a friend who's who's the treasurer of of a town of 15000 people on eastern Long Island. And he told me that the question that people ask him about more frequently than any other question Mm -hmm. is his position on abortion.
5: Absolutely and that could have nothing to do literally with your job as the dog catcher but as long as you say that you're pro life in certain states you're raising money and you're getting seats and and so with that being the case add that to gerrymandering we will have a surge of people filling positions elected official positions that are here for a very specific agenda mm-hmm. so once we fill those positions or once those uh, people are elected to those seats then what then we have no ability to counter what what legislation is being presented i mean that's literally a very short term play and it's even more short term because we know that if it is codified that the supreme court has the you know wherewithal to then have a case filter back through and then exactly. strike it down again exactly. and so it's it's literally turning your power over and getting very little in, in return.
0: You know, I, I think you're exactly right. And the, the Democrats, you remember when Harry Reid was the Senate majority leader, the Democrats lifted the filibuster on judicial nominees mm-hmm. because the Republicans had just jammed up all these Obama nominees mm-hmm. uh, because the Democrats couldn't put together 60 votes to to invoke cloture. And what ended up happening? We got three Trump appointees who many Democrats view as extremist. And there's nothing that any Democratic senator could do to stop them. Absolutely. Uh, The Hill newspaper is reporting that Biden has decided to appoint to the federal bench a Kentucky attorney by the name of Chad Meredith. Um, I don't understand this at all, but the Hill is speculating that this is part of a deal, a private deal, right, Between Biden and Mitch McConnell, this guy, Chad, Chad Meredith is the solicitor general of the state of Kentucky, Mm -hmm. and he's represented Kentucky in at least three federal suits Mm -hmm. to ban abortion um, and to end covid mask mandates. The White House had no comment. And we only know about this because of Congressman John Yarmouth, a Democrat from Kentucky, Mm -hmm. who said, look, this is outrageous. Yeah. Yeah, And he went public with it. So the White House had no comment. uh, But Yarmouth said that the deal uh, was that McConnell gets his guy on the federal bench and then McConnell won't oppose several of Biden's uh, somewhere at some point down the line Um, is. Is this just how Washington works, or is this something more cynical? Should we we be worried about Joe Biden caving to something like this?
5: Well, let first of all let's look at Joe Biden has probably some of the most senior um, backroom dealing establishment type uh, history in as of, of any elected official currently yes. sitting. Okay,
0: he's, he had been in the Senate he's, since 1972. He's 1970 been doing two. this for a
5: very very long time. <laughs> And so with that level of experience, horse trading, backroom deals are kind of just the Washington way, and that's kind of what he's used to doing. And so what we won't understand is the why, the why he's doing this and what the play is. Let's pray that there's chess being played. I mean, with some of the other suggestions, I'm not seeing that be the case, but let's we can I mean we, there's the hope that this makes sense on some men, but I can't see it at all. You have a, a person that he's putting uh on the courts who has said that if the all of the abortion clinics in Kentucky close down, women will not be impacted, the impact on the women of Kentucky would be negligible because they're within 150 miles of another abortion clinic that because of the way the state of Kentucky is situated. Let's break that down. Okay, so you have a person who is, I don't know, between 10 and 15 or 10 and 16 weeks that needs that doesn't have a whole lot of income in the first place, which is why they're deciding they don't want to continue with the pregnancy and they want to terminate. Maybe the father's be, of the child has become abusive. Maybe he's lost his job. He's drinking and he's, you know, like I said, violent or whatever the situation may be. She simply he may have passed away and she just doesn't have the funds to take on a fourth or fifth child, and she doesn't have the ability to one. Um, travel 150 miles. She may not have a vehicle or she may not have someone who will take her 150 miles. We also know that you cannot drive yourself home from certain procedures. And so if she doesn't have a support system enough to raise a child, what makes you think that she would have the support system to go and terminate the child? And so what this does is it disenfranchises women and it targets the socioeconomically disenfranchised specifically and puts them in a position that they have to literally beg for uh, access to, and they they almost I mean, whether they beg or not, they're um, unable to get access to simple rights of reproductive decision making that women across the country should have the right to in other states. Yeah.
0: The Brookings Institution uh, came out with a study on Biden's judicial nominees a week or so ago. As I said in the opening, he's appointed a lot of federal judges. Yeah. But only half of them have been confirmed. What's the holdup, do you think? Not a single Democrat has voted against a single one one. of the Biden uh, appointees or nominees. Uh, So why not just bring up the rest for confirmation? And before you answer, I'll add for our listeners who are current on the news, uh, Senator Pat Leahy fell in his home this morning and broke his hip. And so he's going to be out of commission for a while. So the Democrats actually only have 49 votes now. Um, right. So we know that. But in a perfect world, it, it would we be 50-50. Yeah. Please go right ahead.
5: Um, so in in alignment with what the Brookings Institute said, it, there is, um, I guess, reason to applaud um, or not applaud, but just to appreciate that um, President Biden has uh, actually, you know, nominated more Um, judicial, had more judicial nominees than probably, you know, most other presidents. So is he on track to actually confirm them? No. Um, Why is that? Well, again, what I'm starting to be concerned about is the willingness to do backroom deals, the willingness to horse trade, the willingness to um, slow down the hmm, slow down progress why? I honestly, I, I'm not seeing the play here. Unfortunately, we've got someone running plays and they're not absolutely clear to the team what's going on mm-hmm. and why. Because and and so. um, It would be in our it would be in the Democrats favor to confirm as many of the and, and not only that, because he's nominated people who have, you know, Majority of them have three years of experience as public defenders. Mm -hmm. What does that tell you about these
0: people? That was my next question. It
5: tells you that a lot of these people have a a conscience and and they're concerned about uh, socioeconomic issues, about justice, about um, not just being, you know, pro big business and things of that nature. So uh, these are people whose opinions, the diversity of their opinions is greatly needed in the court. But why is it that we're not pushing for them? A, you know, I'm I, I hate to just be the person without any answers, right. but
0: but I, I think nobody has an answer on this.
1: And I think that this is a criticism of the administration. Absolutely. You know, at yes. first we were like we would get people to come on sort of defending the administration, saying, no, 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 they're doing great stuff. It's just their communication isn't very good. But it's true. Their communication has been remarkably poor, I think, both to, to the public and also within the party like from the administration to the democrats i mean you have a very different
5: situation from the last <laughs> yeah right <laughs> where we had an over sharing and Too overcommunication mm-hmm. and twitter tweets coming out of the office every 15 seconds and it's like oh my god what did this man say mm-hmm. today <laughs> okay what's what is what is happening sir mm-hmm. where as on the flip side now we're just not hearing enough right. and there the transparency is not there and the plays are not being called and uh, the people are su- the people will suffer because of it because here's the truth we have to be able to plan um on the ground boots on the ground grassroots has to be able to plan and understand what the move is and yes there are probably some calls that happen and and leadership and different uh, organizations in NAACP or whatever you have may ACLU those people may be on those calls but the the average person who wants to be involved who wants to stay abreast is is at a loss right now and
0: um, sometimes Joe Biden does something that's positively inspired, right? The uh, judge, uh, uh, Ketanji, uh, Brown Jackson was sworn in just an hour ago Absolutely. as a member of the Supreme court. She is the only b- member of the Supreme court now that had experience as a defense, uh, attorney, mm-hmm. uh, Biden has been great. As you said a second ago about appointing uh, people to federal judgeships who had experience as public defenders. Yes that that's what we need. Joe Biden also was responsible for co-writing with Strom Thurmond the uh the judicial reform bill in the 1970s i guess it was that uh that helped to fill our prisons beginning uh in the at the very end of the Nixon administration. So sometimes he's right on, sometimes he's way off. Uh what about these nominees that you're seeing that haven't been uh confirmed yet? Are are these the kind of people that are going to continue uh, Joe Biden's promise of diversity and people with with broad experience, not people who have gone from, you know, a USA jobs at the at the Justice Department straight Mm -hmm. into the federal judiciary Mm
5: -hmm. and educate. I mean, they're educationally diverse. They're um, racially diverse. You've got Asian, I believe, an Asian woman, um, several African-Americans uh several women i mean the diversity is absolutely there the educational diversity is there um the economic diverse uh, socioeconomic background mm. diversity is there uh so there's there's been a widespread and and it's it's almost as if the people that you know in, in all of the horse trading all the political uh conversations he's gotten good people suggested to him From, you know, across the country, like his his, whoever suggesting.
0: And and those suggestions usually come from the U.S. senators representing that state. Do Mm -hmm. they
5: not? Yes. Hmm. And. I would say that from from where I where I sit, they across the board, I want to say the 70 or 80 um, that 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 we've seen um, overall looked like a very good, you know, class of, of. except this, this most recent one <laughs> <Right>. from Kentucky, <laughs> except the most recent one, um, overall see, but even with that and, and to the point that, you know, Mitch McConnell is, is, or, uh, allegedly pushing this, this candidate, even with that, there's real realizing that there are, you know, different people suggesting, mm-hmm. um, candidates or nominees to, to the president. It's just a matter of, What's slowing him down? Yeah, I mean, because the heck is... with the way Congress works, um, we he should be able to get in another 11 to 15, you know, this year mm-hmm. um, in a lame duck session next year. Even if Republicans do take over, he could probably eke out three. Mm-hmm. So there's really nothing that should be stopping. I mean, we should be literally having a nomination hearing. At, confirmation hearing every other week if possible. And And, we need it, especially the way the Supreme Court is stacked. Mm -hmm. It would only benefit, it would only benefit the country. Well, I won't say the country, but it would only benefit the Democrat Party Mm -hmm. if these uh, nominees are actually confirmed. Mm
0: -hmm. um, There's only one nominee. Uh, His name escapes me right now, but it's an Asian American um, nominated to, I think it's the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. Whom Republicans have seriously strenuously objected to, everybody else just seems to be caught in the in the the gears of the bureaucracy. It's just moving slowly because government moves slowly, I guess. I wanted to ask you about this uh, this EPA ruling today from the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. The Supreme Court ruled that or it curbed the EPA's ability to regulate the admission the emission of greenhouse gases. Yeah. Um, the media are calling this the most consequential environmental decision to come out of the court since the 1970s, mm-hmm. since the, the Nixon administration. And it seriously weakens the, the Biden administration's ability to, flight, to fight climate change. So what's next? If the Democrats don't have the votes in Congress to change the law or to change policy, and they're not a- allowed to change policy through the regulatory process, where do they go from here?
5: What I have to say, and I actually said it before, we are on a very dangerous train ride. Uh, We have Justice Alito a lot of times driving this train and America needs to be on high alert because, and I don't want to be the person screaming the sky is falling, but I almost feel like we're headed to hell in a handbasket. We have... uh, a decision, a Roe versus Wade, and I hate to go back to that, but to some extent, it's almost like the domino that if that falls, there's so much other things, so many other decisions behind it that will be reversed as a result of it. And we've already seen the targeting. And when you look at the decision of Roe versus Wade, they're literally calling out the next play, the the justices, are calling out the next play and saying something to the effect of, "A uh, judge, judge uh, Justice Alito said, just as Rover, I'm sorry, just as Plessy versus Ferguson, Brown versus Board of Education are poorly decided decisions, so too is Roe versus Wade." Wait oh a God. minute. Yeah. That has nothing. These two cases have nothing to do with one another. No. So for the justice to call it out is literally him calling the play and saying, guys, here's mm-hmm. where we go. We, we finish with this one. We're going here next. Yes. And what.
0: The- Which may be why uh, Thomas then talked about contraception. Yes. And mm-hmm. uh, what was the other one? Um, Plan B versus pills. Texas, That's right. right. That was
1: privacy. That's privacy, basically yeah. Being able to have sex with somebody mm-hmm. who's the same gender. Uh, As
5: I said, all of the, you know, welcome to Pride Month. You guys need to pay attention. Stop Mm -hmm. the partying and pay attention. Everything is getting ready to come under scrutiny. Mm -hmm. And they, I mean, not just scrutiny. There is an agenda. There is a legislative agenda. And they're on the attack. Mm -hmm. Um, We have seen the uh, reversing of Miranda rights.
0: Yes, um, a week ago. A
5: week ago, and here's the thing: generally, before this um, let, this case came down, there was, a, you know, and I have a little bit of criminal experience, so I'll, I'll I'll throw that out there. My first case out of law school was a first degree murder trial.
0: Wow! <laughs> wow!
5: <laughs> just baptism wild. by fire, right? Exactly, just wild time. But there's something called the fruit of the poisonous tree doctrine. <laughs> And that's one of the first things you learn in law school and you learn that if the police find evidence and it's based on them doing something that was illegal that they had no business doing that was inappropriate conduct on their part they cannot bring it into court and use it to convict you because if they didn't have a valid search they didn't have a valid right to or a valid um a warrant to come into your house and they found a, a pound of cocaine. Well, what were you doing in my house in the first place? Mm-hmm. Why? Because mm-hmm. I have my my second, my amendments tell me that I have the right to uh, be protected against unreasonable search and seizure. So how did you get in my house in the very first place? Well, now the court is saying, okay, but they found cocaine. And it doesn't matter that they didn't read you your Miranda rights. And you told them that or and you allowed them to um, get inside, you know, the car or whatever, whatever they found. It's totally okay. And now if you are sentenced to jail wrongfully Mm. and you face 20 years in prison, well, that's just your fault. You don't get to sue anybody. That's too bad. Mm. Yeah. And so we are realizing that in a in a country where we know for a fact and it doesn't really matter where you stand. You've got to know that there have been police brutality killings that were unjust. I mean, no matter where and okay, so I'm not going to get everybody to agree on this, but the whole putting your knee on someone for 7 minutes, it's murder. It's mm-hmm. not a mistake, it's not um I was trying to Poor detain, training. you know, it's murder, right? And so if this case were to be before this Supreme Court, <clears throat> This Supreme Court would say, well, that's too bad. Mm-hmm. He, he died and he doesn't, his family doesn't have a right to sue mm-hmm. and, and, and be, you know, be uh, uh, given punitive damages mm-hmm. because this police officer. You know, he was just doing his job. Right. And so this is the direction that we're going. And these are the type of cases that we have to be mindful of being before this type of Supreme Court with Justice Alito driving. I mean, I don't know what, you know, the chief justice is doing, frankly, but you have to be aware that we're going in a direction that's literally leaving un- people unprotected. So the state now has the right to decide when it comes to a woman's body, but the state doesn't have a right to decide when it comes to uh, gun rights. So we're we're picking and choosing what we will and won't give to the state. And then you have this intellectually dishonest justice say well we have to look at the first through the eighth amendment to see if the first through the eighth amendment gives women the right to an abortion Mm -hmm. well time out women didn't even get the right to vote to the 19th amendment so you're being intellectually dishonest in the first place you know good and well that nothing in the first through the eighth amendment says that a woman on its face it's not there's nothing that's going to say a woman has the right to an abortion because women weren't even considered human beings Mm -hmm. african americans weren't even considered human beings so for all intents and purposes, it's intellectually dishonest. And this court is literally have they've already made the decisions of where they want to go. They're calling their plays. They're coming after Plessy versus Ferguson. They're coming after the right to privacy. You will not be able to decide who you want to have sex with or be married to. You will not be able to um, have autonomy over your body as a woman. You will not be able to. I mean, the what you will not be able to do is expansive. And it's coming. Yeah. And and, and getting rid exactly of the filibuster is right. not enough. It's not enough.
0: I have to ask you about the January 6th committee. Let's go. Yeah. It seems that we've been bombarded with news of crimes or potential crimes uh, committed by people around President Trump in the final days of, of his administration. Mm-hmm. Uh, there has been some debate among the members of the committee about whether they would make criminal referrals to the Justice Department. We was, we said on the show last week, Benny Thompson said there would be no criminal referrals. Mm-hmm. And Liz Cheney said, oh, yes, there will be. Yeah. And then a Democrat from Illinois whose name I can never remember said that it's it's their ethical duty to refer to refer.
5: Absolutely. Um, to know a crime happened and not speak up.
0: I mean, exactly. And we know that the committee has been providing the Justice Department with transcripts of the interviews that they've done but they haven't made any formal criminal referrals. Should we expect criminal referrals? Do you think people will be charged? And I'm not meaning, you know, the idiots who were smashing windows on the 6th. I mean, people in the White House.
5: Can we extrapolate this picture a little bigger? Please. Okay, let's let's go big picture here. So what we have is, we have a Supreme Court driving us on the highway to hell, and we have a person who who selected or added three, three created the the mm-hmm. the majority mm-hmm. um and added those people to the supreme court trying to get back into presidential office mm-hmm. and then you know technically whether or not they have majority control of the house or senate won't it won't matter as much mm-hmm. right and because we we already know him to be the king of the presidential, uh, uh, the, I'm sorry, where he just signs away this decision. We, yeah, we we already know that that's how he operates. Yes, he he signed more. Um, yeah, what's the name? Executive of order Executive orders. Or, or executive order. But there's a uh, any signing
0: statement. Right. Uh, yes, uh-huh. he signed
5: more of those than any president. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So we understand that we are no, we're literally teetering off the edge of democracy. Okay, mm. we are literally teetering off the edge, and if that's the case why wouldn't you if you knew a crime had been committed do whatever you need to do to protect democracy it's your duty why wouldn't you uh-huh and that's what's not making sense it's almost as if you have the democrats willing to put this country in a basket and put a bow on it and hand it over mm-hmm. Why are we making backroom deals? Why are we horse trading? Why are we playing <laughs> politics when democracy is at stake?
0: Yeah, we had the same conversation just before the show started. Mm-hmm.
5: This isn't about oh let me be fair to you and you be fair to me when it's your turn. We don't have the that Yes. <laughs> there is so much that this country has literally so so much of what this country is and could be going forward that it will literally send us back 50 to 100 years. Yeah. Well, hell, sending sending African-Americans back 50 to 100 years, you darn near putting yeah, us that, back on a plantation. That's a big problem. I mean, I yeah. expect for black people to be back on a plantation by Christmas if we allow Alito to keep driving. And if you allow this, pres- this, this, this uh, man not to be held accountable for his mm-hmm. actions.
0: Well, that's my next question then, because both Politico and The Hill are reporting that there's chatter. On Capitol Hill, not at the White House, but on Capitol Hill, that people in the know can see a scenario whereby uh, a referral is made, a criminal referral is made on President Trump to the Justice Department, that there's conversation about an indictment, and before anything really goes terribly far, that Biden pardons him.
5: Again, that's one of the... <laughs> I just couldn't, I, I can't wrap my brain around the idea that the person that is literally attempting tyranny, and, and not because it's about the party, it's about the person and a certain set of ideology in this country that's literally pro-tyranny, mm-hmm. and you would allow that person a get-out-of-jail-free card. I mean, what the work that it took, and, and it, when you look at that young lady, uh, is it Carol Hutchinson?
0: Uh, Ch- Cass- uh, Ch- Ch- Chass- Cassidy. Cassidy. Ca- Cassidy. When you Edgson. look
5: at her testimony, this almost two hours of testimony and what she revealed yeah. about the behind the scenes. First Absolutely of all, shocking. What did it take? And, and I, I I'm looking at the whole thing, the whole two hours, and I'm wondering, what did it take for this woman to decide to go against everything she's known and stood in alignment with and believed for the last several years of her life? To come forward and I would almost say be flipped, Mm -hmm. but what did they have to do? Was she threatened? Was she pressured? Mm -hmm. What could they have done? I mean, because everybody else has decided that they're going to plead the fifth. Mm -hmm. What on earth would make this woman decide to speak up and say such damning things and open up such a can of worms Now, either everyone else is going to come forward because of the, you know, then feel courageous or, or be threatened with the same pressure, whatever, you know, went on behind the scenes. I honestly don't know because to my mind, I can't imagine what could have gotten to her to make her change and speak up. Even if, even if she was disgusted by what happened, as she said, everyone else who was disgusted is still pleading the fifth. Yeah, They're silently disgusted with what happened in the Trump uh, administration mm-hmm. and they're yes. just going to ride it out and and hold on to the administ- uh, to the establishment the and hope that they have another person going forward who's a better candidate yes. but they are not defecting this no. woman has defected yep. okay so enormously- an interesting
0: explanation for that it was just speculation of course okay. but it's because she's young and and at the start of her career mm-hmm. and because of that she doesn't have a rabbi To look Mm. out for her at the highest levels. Mm -hmm. She's not a John Eastman who clerked for Clarence Thomas. And so this is her opportunity to save herself. Mm. And so she went and saved herself, which was really the wise thing to do.
5: But in going rogue, I honestly, I can't see this benefiting her.
0: Oh, no, this is going to hurt.
5: This, But it's hard to be a whistleblower. She's She, she didn't create—just fr- because she made enemies right. within the Republican Party right. and she's now off the Trump train doesn't mean that she now has friends. Oh, no,
0: you're exactly right.
5: And so she's literally put herself in no man's land. Mm-hmm. And I know a little something about that because I did that myself. Mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a little familiar with that going against— the party that you came in mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. Um, working me personally, working for the, um, you know, the helping do voter protection for Obama back mm-hmm. in 2008 and then standing up and saying the democratic party isn't doing what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah. Uh, the congressional black is you know, mm-hmm. I literally stood up and spoke out and I, I did not create new friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I did it because the truth was the truth yeah. and that justice needed to be served. But I did it on because of my moral compass. Yes. My My question is, if she's willing to come forward and do this, why wouldn't we go all the way to get her to speak up and not use the information You're and not get more right. people to in this pol- the possible political road of Trump 2024?
0: Yeah, we're going to have to leave it on that thought. I hate to even end the conversation. That was fantastic. Thank you very much, Reese Everson, for joining us here in the studio. Reese is an attorney and women's advocate. She's the founder of The Blush Project, as well as an accomplished author. She has many books. She's written The The Babe's Guide to Winning in the Workplace, The Babe's Guide to Generational Wealth, and The Babe's Divine Feminine Grace. You can learn more about her at mreeseverson.com. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take another short break and come right back.
1: Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Whitty here with John Kiriakou, dipping into some news uh, from the the left coast right now, Uh, talking a little bit about about crime and punishment and sort of California as a a microcosm of the really poisonous discussion uh, right now about uh, how to how to understand and manage crime and what we're doing about it. Joining us for all of this is Tina Desiree Berg. She's host of the podcast District 34 and reporter for Status Coup. Thanks for joining us again, Tina. Hey, folks. Glad to be back. So I want, you know, I have a lot of different things to talk to you about. But first of all, we have, of course, all seen videos of what happened to oh you while God. you were covering some of the abortion rights protests in L.A. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just wanted to ask you in your own to tell us in your own words what went down and uh, and whether you're going to take any action as a result. Well,
6: gosh, you know, uh, I'm still kind of stunned, actually, by what happened because I didn't see it coming at me. Maybe I should have. I was really focused on trying to film an arrest that was taking place. Mm-hmm i didn't i didn't see this officer coming out of left field at me. Uh, basically the first one hit me in the head. I grabbed the railing just to try to not fall over and then another officer swooped in and shoved me as hard as he could so i fell to the ground. Um you know, i just it just it, we have a new law in California that we passed a couple months ago that basically is supposed to protect uh, press freedom. It's SB98. Mhm. And it basically says that law enforcement shall not intentionally assault, interfere with, or obstruct a journalist if they're in the course of their duties. Uh, they're not allowed to arrest journalists after calling a unlawful assembly, you know, a host of other things. Mm-hmm. It took many months to formulate this legislation that was, uh, you know, obviously fair for the journalists, but also allowed for a certain level of public safety. I think this is solid law. I mm-hmm. don't know what went awry Friday, but clearly lots of things went awry. i um, I think part of the problem is that there was a large group of protesters uh it had whittled down from maybe two thousand to five hundred. They were marching through the streets of downtown l a um, you know, and I think if they had allowed them been continue marching that they probably would have petered out at some point because mm-hmm. it's been going on for at least five or six miles. I was getting my I was getting my steps in right
3: <laughs>
6: <laughs> and, but unfortunately uh, a small group of officers got out of their vehicles with their billy clubs and riot gear and started blocking one of the intersections as they were coming down. It. I mean,
1: I, I don't want to interrupt you, Tina, but this is something that we see all the, as you say, March probably would have petered out. And yet you have some officers to show up and just perpetrate violence, you know, instead of letting things run its course. I don't want to interrupt your story, but it's just like we see this all the time.
6: Yeah, I don't understand why this happens. And, and the times, in fact, the times you see where they don't do this, it pretty much does peter out Mm -hmm. if there had been some looting going on vandalism or whatnot i it would have made sense to me but but then the the second part of the conversation that i would say is problematic breakdown in the commanding officer whoever he was that evening i wasn't able to get a straight answer on that (laughs) was that it was too small of a group to handle 500 protesters and they were very aggressive so within moments of time these uh, handful of officers were surrounded by a lot of protesters and angry women. Like, what are you doing? These are our first Amendment rights. Um And then they wildly started swinging their batons into the air right. uh, in response to that. And they ended up leaving. And I, I knew at that moment, I was like, oh, God, here we go. They're going to come back now with, you know— Hundreds of officers and and stuff just going to get get nuts, which is exactly what happened. Yeah. Um, now, as for my personal situation, what I the other thing that I don't understand is you can clearly see in the video that there's a handful of activists standing in front of me, hovering mm-hmm. over the guy getting arrested and filming it. So I don't understand why that was ignored while I was attacked by these two officers.
1: Yeah, it's outrageous. It's a it's a horrible video and good for you for <laughs> continuing to work through it as, you know, half of the Internet now has commented. <laughs> right? Honestly. But gotta keep going. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about, I want to talk about West Hollywood just because it's it's been making headlines over here on the East Coast. Uh, the New York Post writes, West Hollywood votes to defund Sheriff's Department despite soaring crime. And uh, Fox LA asks, Defund L.A. County Sheriff? What's next for West Hollywood after voting to cut deputy funds? And so, one, I think it is interesting that The New York Post is suggesting that soaring crime means we should give more money to police in light of a study that I saw last night that found that police solve just about half of murder cases nationwide, the lowest rate ever recorded. Uh, In Chicago, that rate is about 24 percent. In L.A., the homicide clearance rate is about 28 percent. For nonviolent crimes, it is a whopping 57 percent. So if we already know cops don't prevent crime, they also don't really solve crimes. So maybe if crime really is soaring, we actually should try something new. Uh, But, you know, aside from that digression, what what has West Hollywood actually done and and why have they done it?
6: conversation um is that there are unincorporated areas of la county that aren't part of la city that are their own separate cities west holly hollywood is one of them glendale mm-hmm. is one of them burbank is one of them beverly hills is one of them uh so if they don't have their own police force they often will contract out to the la sheriff's department which is obviously uh, responsible for county enforcement so that's mm-hmm. what's going on in west hollywood and um, the sheriff's department protects their budget because uh, obviously they want to give their sheriff lots of benefits. I think the average uh, benefits package for a sheriff is hundred over a hundred thousand. The average salary total is almost three hundred K. I know the under sheriff was paid almost seven hundred and fifty thousand oh dollars.
3: Mm-hmm.
6: We're talking about a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think part of and parcel to the conversation is that a lot of the wealthy elites, real estate development money, et cetera, want to protect the amount of Law enforcement that's out there because their, their their main issue isn't necessarily social unrest or doing something about homelessness or income inequality. Mm-hmm. It's in private property. So when you understand all those d- dynamics, it makes much more sense to see that a Democratic sheriff, a uh, big D party, mm-hmm. not sheriff, well, yeah, sheriff too, actually, but uh, mayor would side with what would seem to be a uh, far right talking point at this point
3: mm-hmm.
6: because they have this in common. Mm-hmm. So having said that, uh, I think the argument here is very misconstrued. I think the data you bring to the table is, is very on point. And the discussion that's really happening right now is, is there a better way to spend this money?
3: Yeah.
6: And I think a lot of uh, folks that uh, look at this issue, they think there is because many things have been locked into. And it's the same thing with the LAPD that's getting, what, 52 54% of the city budget. They are tasked with doing things that they are not trained to do, like dealing with uh, homelessness issues, mm-hmm. health crisis. There are a million other things we should be putting money into so that they can get back to actually solving crime instead of criminalizing poverty, so to speak. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, I think it's an interesting thing what's happening in West Hollywood. Um, I think it's the right move that the city council is making. We're talking about a small percentage of the funds, maybe 17%, I believe. Mm -hmm. And I think that having these unarmed individuals out there to provide, you know, other kinds of help is going to be beneficial And I think also, I mean, we we can say this. We've talked about this in the past when I've been on the show. Income equality is a big driver. Yeah. The crime that we're seeing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the sad thing is you have sort of the opposite happening elsewhere in L.A. Uh, George Gascon, the the D.A. there, when he was sworn in in tw- December 2020, he said he was going to immediately end cash bail in L.A. County. There was a lot of excitement over that. I see that in May of this year, he lifted that order and that he's also under some pressure uh, regarding a, a possible recall. And so now, according to civil rights law- lawyer Alec Karak, Kara Yes. John, I was going to be like, John, yes. you know how to say that. He was a
0: distant cousin of mine. Is he really? Yes, he is.
1: He uh, is a civil rights lawyer, and he is noting that a group of L.A. County judges have met to reintroduce a cash bail schedule starting today. Uh, And so when you talk about criminalizing poverty, you know, cash bail is a great way to ruin the lives of poor people who can't pay bail to get out of jail on, you know, sometimes really sometimes either crimes that they have not committed or, um, you know, negligible ones. And so, you know, as as uh, the civil rights lawyer points out. Los Angeles already has the most crowded jail in the United States. It's the biggest jail in the country. It jails the most people per capita of any society in the world. This is his analysis. And so a new cash bail schedule could affect tens of thousands of people. And I wanted to ask you, you know, on the one hand, you have, I think, some steps forward, some progress being made in West Hollywood. On the other hand, you have the reintroduction of cash bail and uh, what seems to be perhaps a movement to recall George Gascon gathering steam. I wanted to ask you about that.
6: Right. So on the cash bail thing, I am actually pretty stunned by this. I did see mm-hmm. um, Alec talk about this on Twitter, and I reached out to uh, a reporter friend at the L.A. Times. And this, you're right, this is being underreported. I didn't know about it. It was under my L.A. Times reporter friend's radar. So uh, hard to know what happened in that secret meeting. Mm-hmm. I think that Alec would not report this if it wasn't true. So I find this to be very disturbing. Uh, cash bail absolutely does criminalize poverty. We had, you know, many poor people that couldn't afford – to post bail have not been charged. Maybe I've not been convicted of any crime, just charged with something. So they could very well be innocent, but they're sitting in a, in a prison because they can't afford the cash bail. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we've seen exorbitant amounts of money attached uh, to crimes that just don't seem fair. Like, I mean, I could give you many examples of uh, people arrested at protest. We're talking mm-hmm. about protest crimes. There were, where DAs have gone after million dollar bails, which is something that you would normally see, with somebody that uh, was involved in some sort of a murder uh, charge. Right. There's a, there's a whole host of things that are going on here. They, they are not about justice, mm-hmm. all in my opinion, um, and I'm sorry to see that happen. As far as Gascon is concerned, this would be the second attempt uh, that he has at, at recall. I don't think it's going to pass go. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't make it the first time, they are not—they ha- they haven't got enough uh, signatures to make it happen this time. I see these guys out there. They're getting paid to get signatures. There's mm-hmm. paid campaign, doc money behind it. I don't think it's, it's going to make it through. I could be wrong there. But as many—but mainly the people that criticize Gascon are either incredibly wealthy or they're incredibly right-wing. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's the majority of, of L.A. individuals that feel this way. They're actually happy with a lot of the changes that he's making. And I think it's also important to keep in mind that Gascon is an uh, ex-police officer, so he knows what it's like to be on both sides of the equation. Mm
3: -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: You know, since you mentioned protest crimes, I think we should just jump to this story of yours in the Daily Dot about uh, wild things going down in San Diego. Uh, It's an attempt—so as I understand it, it's an attempt to create criminal conspiracies within protests. And so you write that the city has indicted 11 people on a variety of protest-related charges, like instigating confrontations, using mace, using a stun gun, throwing chairs, fighting. I don't know if any of those individuals did any of those individual things. Uh, But what is interesting here is the San Diego DA insisting that there is a conspiracy, right? This is not different individuals who went to a protest and may or may not have broken the law. This is an Antifa conspiracy, which I think would, uh, of course, allow her to to seek longer sentences for these individuals if they're convicted. And also, I think, you know, down the line, justify further restriction of protest, more surveillance of people uh, attending protests and and those kinds of things. So I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about what is going on and and maybe why people outside of California should be paying attention.
6: Yeah, no. This should definitely be something on everybody's radar because this would be the first in, uh, in the nation where you've seen a DA collectively try to charge protesters as antifa. We haven't seen this in the past, uh, you know, which is kind of prima facie weird because they're anarchists. They don't have leaders. They pur- purposely go out of the way go, go out of the way to not have leaders. But what she's basically basing her conspiracy on is uh, social media posts of a flyer, protest flyer and liking and sharing that post and putting on black clothing. Mm -hmm. So really thin evidence here. Um, I think what's more disturbing to me, though, is that she's claiming there wasn't a mutual fray when there absolutely was. Now, imagine this was three days after the Capitol insurrection. So this is January 9th. And because of that, there was a very robust counter-protest uh, planned for the Stop the Steal rallies. Uh, so this particular Stop the Steel rally was scheduled to be on the Pacific Beach Pier mm-hmm. that morning. And a large group of counter-protesters showed up and they occupied the pier prior to the start time of, of the Trump rally because they wanted to be there to prevent the Stop the Steal rally from happening more or less.
3: Mm-hmm.
6: But if you go through video of the day, you will see quite clearly that – there was absolutely a mutual fray. Uh, one of the victims that is uh, listed in the indictment actually had a very large knife. And I have video of him that I've seen throughout the day where he pulled the knife out and threatened people with, mm-hmm. but he wasn't charged with anything. Um, I have other video where a guy uh, who is might be associated with the Peckerwoods, because I've seen him uh, wearing Peckerwood T-shirts and associated with known Peckerwoods down. There's a group of them on the inside uh, interior area of San Diego County. Mm-hmm.
1: Can you remind us of who the Packerwoods are? This is a, a a cop gang. Yeah, no. Well, they're
6: they're worse than that. They're an Aryan Brotherhood gang. Oh, okay. prevalent in the prison system. And I think why the Packerwoods are mainly uh, engaged in all kinds of you know gun running, drugs, like major crimes like this. Mm-hmm. But they have the added level of also being neo Nazis. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: Great. God. Extra fun.
6: You know, extra fun. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what
6: way to put it. So, um, it turns out, uh, in the course of investigation, I'm not telling you about things that, d- that didn't quite make it into the story because it was already a longer piece. Mm-hmm. But this particular individual had a bolo out from him, out for his arrest for a separate investigation uh, from the Joint Terrorism Task Force, and oh, okay. this can see video walk right in front of the police skirmish line and throw pull out the, the chain on a smoke grenade and throw it out the candle protest. Ooh, wow. I'm just giving you an idea. So so I need to understand why the DA is going full throttle at one group and ignoring the actions of the other entirely and, in fact, claiming that there was not a mutual frame. I think this is absurd. Um, the other thing that kind of made me laugh, which I used as the lead, is yeah. go down and and I <laughs> I listened to one of the bail hearings. I went down and uh, sat through the grand jury uh, arraignment hearing whatnot. But at one point, uh, the DA did say that they had stopped to arm themselves on their way down. Mm-hmm. And I actually, in that moment, thought, oh, God, maybe there's more to this case that I don't know about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if that's true, that's not good. And then she lists the weapons, and it's they're not weapons. These are common use items that can be used as a weapon. But let's be clear, any common use item can be used as a weapon in the heat of, of a moment, right? right? You can pick up. A can and throw it or whatnot. That's. I, I think we should be more clear about what we decide weapons are.
1: Perhaps a, a a bottle of
6: twisted tea. <laughs> yes, that's right. So she listed that, and the people in the gallery were were laughing, and the bailiff ended up in, uh, injected a few people, and the judge even made a remark about not granting a fourth waiver, and we should talk about what that is in a second. Mm. One of the uh, defendants. But he did say in a comical way, I don't want to see you return, obviously, for another
1: tea incident. I mean, but this is the thing. On one hand, you have someone who is, uh, you know, supposed to be wanted by law enforcement, uh, sort of uh, breaking law or appearing to break the law with impunity right in front of them. And on the other hand, you have a judge who seems dead set on creating a conspiracy out of uh, beverages purchased on the way to a protest. All right, so the DA is just to be clear, not not the judge. But it's, oh, sorry, the DA.
6: Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's it's not shocking. Her her campaign website had the entire anti-Semitic George Soros controls Antifa meme on it. Mm-hmm. it. Sort of seems on brand for where she's coming from. But my question is this: Is this justice? Are this are there were there crimes committed that day that deserved to be prosecuted? I'm not going to say no. I'm going to say yes to that. Some mm-hmm. of these assaults were assaults, and they should be looked at. Mm-hmm. Are they, however, the level of conspiracy to commit a riot felony charges? I don't I don't necessarily think that that's the case at all. Mm-hmm. I also am disturbed by the fact that she's only bringing the hammer down on one side. And it's really clear bias. It's yeah. really disturbing
1: to me. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, California, on one hand, you know, just yesterday we were talking on the show about California becoming the first state to remove um Remove age restrictions, uh, blocking undocumented people from accessing Medi-Cal, right? The state Medicaid program, and so it seems like there is good stuff being done at the state level. You know, the, you have now this state law to try to regulate um, the the treatment of pigs uh, whose pork is sold in this state. That's being challenged by the federal government, but you know, I think I think that was also very good. And yet, at the local level. Uh you seem to have there, there are right wing groups or right wing forces that seem to have quite a lot of power. And there's a very big contrast, you know, between uh, how, I think how the how the rest of the country thinks of California, how California operates in national politics and at state level politics. And then what goes on locally. And I wonder if you think it's sort of unique or if this is something that plays out in a lot of other places in the country.
6: I think it's something that's been playing out in the country the last few years only because of the Trump uh, era so to speak. I think a lot of these people were emboldened under the Trump era. They had maybe not been as well connected with each other, uh, not communicating with each other, not coming out into public arenas and, and voicing their opinions. And we started to see that happening um, right from almost jump under the Trump administration. And I think these folks just continue to, to gather steam. Mm-hmm. So you know they're and they're they're organizing on Telegram now. They're all very much interconnected, and that was something that you weren't really seeing before, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's part and parcel of the conversation. I don't think it's majority rule. I think, uh, and I think it's the same thing with SCOTUS right now. We're looking at a, t- a period of time where where a minority belief is is becoming the mi- minor, uh, majority rule in the country, and I think for many reasons this is dangerous. Uh, I've noted the last month. The last few months, an increase in public sentiment against uh, government institutions, meaning they don't they don't trust the government institutions, and that's not just SCOTUS; it's also law enforcement. And this is really, this is really a bad thing to ha- to see happen because any of these institutions rely on public sentiment and public trust in order to uh, fulfill their obligations to the public.
3: Right mm-hmm.
6: so when when the public population doesn't trust the police anymore, doesn't trust the DA. to to mitigate justice anymore, it it shreds out the fabric of society in a way that, um, you know, very bad repercussions that kind of go throughout. So the concern here um, I'm having is that, you know, somebody like D.A. Summer Stephen clearly doesn't have unbiased justice in mind. I think that that's clear. I mean, part of, I want to bring up part of one of her, uh, I have a copy of, I went down and got copies of all the sealed documents at one point. Mm -hmm. And inside the protective order to relegate discovery in the case, for example, there, there was a claim that a couple of these defendants had access to weapons. And then you look at the attachment, and it's either photos of confiscated guns, but they, these were legal guns that some of the defendants uh, actually were owned by others uh, in some mm. cases. Uh, one was a roommate. One was somebody's father. Uh, but they also included photos of one of the defendants with, with toys. Toy guns.
1: Yeah, I mean,
6: the comedy just writes itself.
1: Yeah, yeah.
6: Why would they do that? They're just discrediting their own uh, case, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, yeah. Unless they think that they won't get caught, or that you know sentiment will let things slide their way. Tina, so, you know, we're going to have to let you go. Of course, as always, we appreciate you know your documentation of of these. You know what what are sort of local level events that have national implications and echoes. So thank you again so much for that work. We'll talk to you again soon. That was Tina Desiree Berg. You can find her on Twitter under that name. You can find her work at Status Coup. You can find her at the District 34 podcast. Thanks so much for joining us, Tina. John, we've got we got a couple minutes left, and I yep. know you've got one story burning a hole in your little brain.
0: Yeah, there is a story. It's the story about Emmett Till. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all know Emmett Till, the the fourteen year old boy who was murdered by Klansmen in in Mississippi uh, in the nineteen fifties for allegedly whistling at a white woman. Mm-hmm. The two uh, people, the two men convicted of uh, not convicted, the two men accused of murdering him were acquitted, mm-hmm. and the woman who. Um, sort of set the whole murder in motion, the woman who had been whistled at, mm-hmm. um, is the one who told the two men where em- uh, Emmett Till was staying. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that over the previous few days, uh, researchers have found an original um warrant for her in a box mm-hmm. in the basement of the courthouse in rural Mississippi where this case was being played out that warrant was never delivered mm-hmm. this woman is still alive she's in her 80s she lives in North Carolina believe it or not the warrant is still valid mm. and now there's a discussion about whether or not to serve her yeah. and charge her for kidnapping In the case of of Emmett Till, frankly, I think it would be a very I think it would be a wonderful thing to do, a very bold thing to do. Mm -hmm. And um, and it would show that, you know, what would be the reason not to? What's the reason not to have to
1: be the goodness of your heart? No, what's the reason not to? Other than I mean, I see that the sheriff at the time never served it because he said he didn't want to bother the woman Because she had two little
0: kids. He didn't want to bother her.
1: That's not a good reason. No. So, you know, I think if there's a warrant for someone, you have to serve it.
0: And how many of these old cases, you know, we talk about Mississippi burning and the three uh, uh, freedom, uh, what were they called, workers, uh, Cheney and uh, Goodman and Mm -hmm. I forget their names now. The ones that were found in an an earthen dam. Right. Um, There are so few stories from that era where in the end, justice was served. Right. You know, in the end, the cops did the right thing.
1: And if you have this part of the process handed to you on a silver platter. Do it. Not doing you it. You gotta do uh, it. Not doing it speaks a lot more than doing it, I would think. I we agree. We are going to have to leave it there. We got one more show this week, though. So all these headlines that have been backing up, we are going to get to them tomorrow, guys. I want to thank all of our guests and our producers and engineers, as always. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witty, thank you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.